Welcome to Bloombox Growing Deeper. I'm Sarah. I'm Hannah. And we're on a mission to help you become the gardener you want to be. Welcome to Bloombox Growing Deeper, Episode 5. Today we're talking about weather. That big topic for gardeners that we cannot control in any way, shape, or form. And climate. And climate. Mostly climate. I okay. don't know. We'll find out because we're going to have a guest join us this time. We're going we're, we're gonna to be talking to Eric and Eric's going to teach us the difference, hopefully, <laughs> between weather and climate, which you probably learned in science class. Did I? Are you sure? Maybe not you. I don't know. I can't tell you what you learned, but most times we learned the difference between science and climate. But we'll let Eric go over that again and introduce himself. So Eric, do you want to tell us uh, about yourself? Hi, I'm Eric Hunt, staff scientist, climatologist with Verisk Atmospheric and Environmental Research. I'm here in Lincoln. Our company is based in Lexington, Massachusetts. And yeah. you're on Innovation Campus, right? That is correct. Which is a fun new part of campus here in Lincoln. So it's fun to see the new uh, programs that have been brought forward by that um, addition to UNL's campuses. Okay, well, Eric, tell us a little bit, and I want to preface this with today we are recording early. So we are recording on February 17th, 2022. Normally we won't tell you when we're recording, but we wanted to tell you because this is going to be airing in March. So anything that we refer to right now as current is February. So things change as we know. So can you tell us a little bit about what the current trends are looking like and maybe start with that difference between climate and weather for us sure you know I, I, there's maybe an old saying that weather is what you get and climate is what you expect so i mean if you've been around a long time you sort of have a frame of reference for what you normally would have at a given time of year so you know january february you know, we normally expect generally colder conditions routine snow cover um you know occasional thaws you know weather is what you actually get so this year we've been generally very very mild and extremely dry for the last three months and you know part of the reason for that you know there's i would say in general we have had a upper air pattern that has been uh, very conducive to colder temperatures and precipitation further east of here. Um, we haven't actually missed out on snow by all that much this winter. If you just go about 200 miles east of here into Iowa, they've had decent snow cover. And because of that, they've also been colder. So if you take a look at uh, temperature anomaly maps for the last say six weeks across uh, North America, what you'll see is most of the eastern part of the continent has been colder than average and western U.S. has generally been warmer than average, but there's even kind of a, a noticeable area in the Canadian and U.S. plains where it has been, you know, kind of appreciably warmer than average. Uh, that's kind of for two different reasons. One has been the just absolute lack of precipitation, snow cover, and because of, we've had very predominant northwesterly flow, which means that, you know, when we're not getting in the colder air masses, we're getting a lot of downsloping from the Rocky Mountains. We are close enough to the Rocky Mountains, you know, the eastern side of the state. Further west you go in the state, the more pronounced it gets. Uh, that when you have west or northwest winds, you actually get pretty warm. So if you've been paying attention this winter, most of our warm days have been when the winds have been from the west or even northwest, which I know might sound sort of counterintuitive to warm up when you get northwest wind. That's actually happened numerous times this winter. And yeah, so the dry landscape has absolutely contributed to us being you know, generally very mild. It's just when we have gotten cold, it's, we've had these wild swings. So like 
Today, for example, it's in the 20s. Two days ago, it was in the low 60s. Tomorrow, it'll probably be 55 to 60. Sunday, it'll be warm. Next week, it'll be much colder. Uh, might be the longest sustained cold we will have had this winter because the cold is actually entering further west. So most of the cold air masses this year have been entering over the eastern part of North Dakota have been sliding east. So we've been catching the western edge of a lot of them. We haven't caught the full brunt of anything. You know, in a typical winter, you know, you'll, you'll have periods of time where the cold tends to go to the east, and then you'll have times where the cold tends to go further west and sometimes we kind of catch the brunt of it. This year has been very heavily dominant toward the east and that's probably the first time that's happened here in several years. And just because of that very persistent troughing, we have really not had any good moisture source. So for us to get decent precipitation in the winter, you, what you would typically want to see is troughing further in the west and decent subtropical moisture coming up so that you actually can tap into Pacific moisture and moisture from the Gulf of Mexico. This year we haven't really had that opportunity. You know, there is that, I think it was New Year's Day where there was a forecast of 8 to 10 inches of snow, which might have verified if we hadn't had really, really dry air at the low levels. I was really looking forward to that snow and then it yeah. didn't come. That was sad. Right. I mean, we ended up getting some, but it wasn't a whole lot. And that was basically been the only real good opportunity we've had so far this winter, uh, which I would say is, is unusual. Um, but one thing that we have noticed in recent years is, you know, increasing variability with precipitation and temperature. So like you think about last year, we were, you know, well above average on snowfall in this region. Two years ago, we were well below. Uh, I mean, I think March and April sort of made it look a little closer to the long-term average, but the actual winter itself was way below average. Three years ago, we had an incredible amount of snowfall. Uh, I think it was the winter of 16, 17, we were very, very low. So, you know, traditionally, historically, snowfall in this region is somewhat variable. In the other periods in the past, the late 60s, uh, the late 80s were kind of, you know, periods in the more distant past that were, um, you know, more snow-free. But this year has been especially dim for snowfall and just any moisture in general. And it actually is sort of uh, counteracting a more recent trend, which is that we've actually been picking up more precipitation in wintertime um, in the last, say, 15 years. It know. definitely has seemed like we've gotten a lot more snow in, in my memory, and I've lived in Nebraska my whole life, uh, the last couple of years. I know last year, you know, I have to hand shovel my driveway. And by the time we got to the end of winter, I think the snow at the end of my driveway was as tall as I was from all the shoveling. Right. I remember walking by your place. And, yeah. yeah, I mean, it was up, you know, your waist in some places. But we've actually have started picking up more rain in especially December, not this past year, but in recent years, we have been picking up more precipitation in the form of rain, especially early winter. You know, whether that trend continues in the future is another story, but that, you know, to me is, that is a sign of climate change. I think some of the models are projecting us to get somewhat wetter in the winter months and potentially somewhat drier in the summer months. Uh, so this winter, to a certain degree, has been a deviation from the recent past in terms of just a lack of precipitation. Okay, well, you set me up for the next question. We can be really quick, you know, whenever the weather doesn't do what we want it to do or expect it to do, it's instantly a sign of climate change. But I also know that there's, you know, trends where a year that's a little different than I'm putting it in quotes normal is still within normal. So can you kind of explain when do we see things and we say that's looking more like climate change or that's just looking like an abnormal year? To say something really is truly caused by climate change takes some amount of research. So it's like in general, you have to almost go back and do some studying you know, within the six months or so after something happened. That's for an example of something that you would say looks like climate change 
just from a you know, weather event, think back to December 15th of 2021, when it was 74 degrees, it was humid, and we had a derecho go through eastern Nebraska and Iowa. I would imagine that that's unprecedented. Now, that's not to say that that has never, ever happened in this area of the country before in mid-December, that that would never happen under natural climate, you know, under natural climate variability, but that definitely has a mark of a climate change signal. The blizzard flooding in March of 2019 in this area, which, you know, a lot of our listeners probably remember that uh, not so fondly, <laughs> depending <laughs> on part of the state you were in, either the blizzard or the flooding or both. You know, I think a, a storm of that magnitude probably has a climate change signal. You know, I think as I just said a bit ago, I, I think the variability that we're getting from even season to season, year to year, could have a climate change signal. As I said, you know, this part of the country, you know, the mid middle of the U.S., middle of this continent in general, variability is normal. But, you know, when you start jumping from, like, I go back four years to uh, 2018, we had, I think, one of the coldest Aprils on record through most of this part of the country, and then we immediately flipped to one of the warmest Mays. It was very, very dry, and then all of a sudden it got very, we went from being looking like, you know, we were heading for a severe drought to, by that fall, we were excessively wet. And then 2019, we were really, really, really wet. Yeah, um, I remember that in 2018, because I know that our colleagues were out trying to assess the damage to trees because that cold happened mm -hmm. after they kind of budded out a little bit. So there was a risk to what that would make it look like. And, and some people may have noticed that the fall of 2018 leaf color was almost non-existent. And that was one of the reasons why. Um, and then our fire team was preparing for a really bad fire season because mm -hmm. it was looking like it was going to be so dry and then it was not as bad as we were expecting. Just to be maybe add a little positive spin on things. You know, I, I, a couple of weeks ago, I took a look at, you know, our driest January is January 1st to February 28th, you know, that period of time on record. And some of those years where that were very dry, the year was bad for, you know, it was a bad summer. Most of them actually were not that bad. Some of the wettest years they've had in January, February uh, were 1936 and 2012, which those are really awful years, especially 1936. That's probably the worst year on record in North, you know, at least this part of the continent. So you're telling me there's hope for my plants this summer. Yes. So my colleague, uh, Judah Cohen, in our home office puts out analogs every year. And I think one of the analogs for this coming year was 2014. I would have to say the last winter that reminded me of this one was the winter 13 14 that one was more was colder there was a little bit more snow but i mean you had a lot of drier day it was dry you had a lot of temperature swings you had a lot of wind most of the moisture was east of here that winter as well uh, and that wasn't a bad summer actually that was probably the last july that was actually where we had sustained pleasant temperatures like we had like a week in the highs of the 70s in july not saying it's going to happen this year but I would but you're say, saying our winter doesn't we can't necessarily say just because we're not getting snow now we're headed into a terrible drought absolutely there's no way to avoid it yeah that's basically what i'm saying is it's you know droughts a drought this summer is not inevitable now that being said uh the lack of moisture we have had the last three months is concerning the surface moisture is basically non-existent. The good news is because we had so much moisture the last part of October, early November, at least on this side of the state, there is deeper moisture for the crops. You know, obviously farmers right now probably are hoping, praying for some moisture before they actually have to go out and plant. Same with gardeners. Is yeah, I'm worried about my trees that I planted last fall. I know Hannah said she's watering hers too. Yeah, I think it's supposed to be nice this weekend. I'm probably going to do some watering. So before we got on, Mike, you were talking a little bit about um, 
drought versus just extended periods of time without precipitation. Uh, is there, do you know the difference or should we just bring on somebody from the drought center, which we could do? Well, you absolutely should bring on somebody from the drought center. Um, so most of the state currently as of today, so the drought monitor is released every Thursday morning. Uh, it's based on inputs from you know, up to that Tuesday. So if you get a lot of rain on Wednesday and it still shows you're in drought, that's because, well, either A, your drought's still probably bad, or uh, it wasn't factored in to that week's. Uh, the only part of the state that currently is not in drought is, you know, extreme eastern Nebraska, and that's in a considerate abnormal dryness, which shows up on that map as yellow. I think a lot of people assume it's drought. It should probably be viewed as either a drought warning or that you are improving, but you are still not really drought free. I would imagine if we do not get precipitation here in the next two weeks, that we probably will be in moderate drought. Uh, and as soon as we go into the spring and start getting warmer, you know, more sustained warmer temperatures and having higher atmospheric demand for moisture, um, you know, I, I think you'll start seeing, you know, more in, potential actual impacts uh, and, you know, things could, you know, get bad fairly quickly. And, yeah, I mean, I would say if, you know, the next three months are relatively dry, this summer could be could be a problem. Widespread dryness in this part of the country does make us more susceptible to heat waves. Yeah, that's a good reminder. <laughs> yes, a good comparison that we don't want to repeat. So... You've talked a little bit about climate change, and I know we have dealt with the misunderstanding of what climate change actually means. Are you able to kind of help us understand, you know, when people say there's climate change happening, this doesn't mean X, Y, Z, or can you address some of the common misperceptions when we're discussing climate change? Perhaps one misconception would be, you know, it's really, really cold, so that means climate change isn't real. And I don't, this is maybe not a great analogy, but you know, I'm a bowler. That's actually how I met my wife. You know, I first started bowling, I averaged maybe 110, 115. Now I average in the 170s. You know, overall, my average is going up. So the Earth's average temperature is going up. It has been going up for, you know, a number of years. I think the last time the global average temperature was below the 20th century average was either January or February of 1985. So, which is probably after, it was probably before both of you were born is my guess. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I wasn't very old at that time. So that, that's to say that, you know, we are trending upward in temperature globally. There are certain places, so the, the Arctic regions, polar regions are increasing much faster. Desert regions, I think in some cases are increasing much faster. Ironically enough, I mean, the, the central U.S. in the summer has been a bit of a warming hole, so we haven't really actually seen temperatures going up that quickly in, say, July and August. Um, we haven't actually had a really hot July here in about, about 10 years. Probably statistically due in some degree. <laughs> but getting back to the point, I, I think one, one misconception would be, say, like, for example, the polar vortex. That would be a good opportunity for some people say, oh, well, you know, look how cold it was in Texas and Louisiana and Oklahoma. How could, you know, climate change, you get this kind of cold? And, you know, what would be to say that, you know, even even in a warming climate, you're still going to have cold snaps in certain places. And, you know, there is growing research, you know, including some that my colleagues contribute to that show that climate change is actually contributing to more of these extreme winter events as well. Uh, that kind of goes back into what I said, like, I think the variability is probably going to increase in extremes of all kinds may increase. But I would also point out that the temperatures we had here in February last year, had that occurred in 1982 or 1985, I don't think it would have drawn as much attention because people were a little more used to those 
types of temperatures, because they occur with a little more regularity, they are getting more infrequent. So when they do happen, they are more problematic. No, I think that analogy made very good sense, because what I kind of hear is you saying that as your bowling score typically goes up, that doesn't mean you can't have a bad night. doesn't mean you can't have a bad night. It doesn't mean you won't have a, a, a bad season or even a bad year. Um, there are places in, I know for sure, western South Dakota, potentially even western Nebraska, that their coldest observed year on record was 2019, very recent. The coldest winter temperatures, or where I think the coldest winter month on record in some places in the Great Lakes was uh, February 2015. So we do have examples in the last 10 years of, you know, places setting all-time cold record. That does not mean that climate change or a warming planet as a whole isn't occurring because it absolutely is. There's ample evidence for it. So now we're going to get into more the gardening side of things <laughs> a sure. little bit. This so, is where I don't have as much expertise. That's okay. We'll all talk about it. So how do you think this specifically this changing climate and what's looking in Nebraska will affect gardeners in particular. We have some thoughts, but we'd like to hear kind of what you think it might be as well. You know, as I kind of told you guys before we got in here, I would classify myself as more of a fantasy gardener. The closest thing I have to gardening is pulling lots of weeds out of landscaping mm-hmm. and keeping that looking really nice. But yeah, in terms of how this would affect gardeners, you know, I, I think my assumption is most gardeners probably have, you know, they grow a set number of plants. And there's a certain time of year when you generally think of planting those because those are generally when the soil temperatures are optimal for those. A change in climate would mean that that optimal temperature range for planting is probably going to be more variable and the window of time with that might be shorter. Some years it might be somewhat longer too. It's hard to know the type of plant. So if, you know, for certain things, I think or like radishes and lettuce are typically planted pretty early, right? Yes. What I think might be difficult for some is you have a year like 2012, which I, if you guys remember, that was the an exceptionally warm March where you, know, you probably could have planted some stuff in late February and it would have been perfectly fine. What you might see in the future is, you know, an exceptionally warm first part of March, and then you, know, you get that really big cold snap for four or five days, and then everything you planted dies because your soil temperatures drop below freezing. So I, I, I would view that as an increasing risk. That's not to say that it's never happened here before. It absolutely probably has, but things like that might become more problematic. Oh, I I 100% agree because that scenario you just laid out where March was so warm, and if we had known in February that it was actually going to stay warm, we could have planted our radish and our cool season crops then. But since we didn't know, they didn't get planted, and then March got warm, we really lost that cool season growing season because we went right into the warm season. Which that's super unusual because like, for instance, this year, we're going to be talking in our next episode, I believe, about spring cleanup and getting ready to plant. This year, the the last date that we're looking at is um, April 28th, which is the first day of spring affair, by the way. And so thinking about planting things in February that could have done really well in March is just really strange. In our... It's hard to put dates on gardening. If I had my preference, I would give all my advice in soil temperature and average uh, daytime temperatures and things, but people don't want that. They want me to give them a date on the calendar, like tax day and Mother's Day, and the climate doesn't care care about tax day last time i checked <laughs> or unfortunately spring affair dates right so you can get on the cpc's website and take a look at their um eight to 14 day outlook and their three to four week outlook the problem is is you know i think we've gotten you know fairly good at 
you know, the short term. So out the seven days, that's, you know, that's improved dramatically last 20 years. Uh, and I think even to a certain extent, there is some skill longer range. So, I mean, you can use teleconnections. So like probably here El Nino, La Nina, mm -hmm. you can use those for some guidance. So that, does, that can give you at least like some enhanced probability of a certain outcome, like maybe a wetter summer or cooler fall or something. You're still really struggling though, is in that I would classify it as, as a subseasonal timeframe. So that four to eight week. And, you know, right now we're sitting February 17th, six weeks from now is early April. And that's probably getting, you know, prime time when people really want to be out doing stuff. And, you know, you could take a look at a forecast out the six weeks. And I would say, you're just about as good as throwing something at the dartboard is, is what, what's actually going to happen. Unfortunately, we just have not gotten to a point in this profession where you are producing really reliable forecasts that far out. And what I would just advise people is, you know, your your own instinct as to when to plant is still valid. I love that you said that. I was about to wrap this segment up by talking about how uh, this whole conversation is a good reminder that we're gardening with nature. We don't get to control nature. And we do cultivate an instinct as a gardener by being out every spring, summer, and fall observing and seeing how things are growing. And we tend to pay extra attention to when the rain comes or doesn't come. And we don't need to discount our own experiences. Say something about precipitation too. Uh, this kind of ties into you know, talking about climate change. Projections are for increased moisture here in the winter. This year obviously is a definite deviation of that trend. Um, in the summer, precipitation events a little bit more excessive, you know, when we do get a week, sometimes we're getting more of the two to three inches, you know, at a time. My understanding is, you know, the, the healthier your soil is, the more of the excessive rainfall that it can hold. So anything you can do to build organic matter and take care of your soil, the more of that water you can store. So it will help mitigate some of the effects of excessive precipitation or tree precipitation events in the future. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, so that kind of leads us into the next section then, which was how will gardeners need to adapt? And we can kind of talk about some of our ideas here. And and one of those is that idea of, well, when we do get rain, harness it for <laughs> everything that it can be, right? And we've been talking about this uh, in SA for years, mostly not just in uh, climate readiness or climate resiliency, but also in what it can do to lessen the impact on city infrastructure as well. So as we see these increase in catastrophic, I don't know if catastrophic is the right word, extreme weather events, um, we're going to see more wear and tear on our infrastructure Absolutely. in our communities. For hydrologists, you know, there's the 100-year floodplain, 500-year floodplain site. So it really means that in a given year, you have like a 1 in 100 chance of, of that occurring. In a changing climate, that 1 in 100 isn't going to be the same. Rainfall events, you know, exceed, say, 2 inches are occurring with a bit more regularity here. There may be some years where the majority of your precipitation is going to come in those heavier events. And the better your soil is, the more you can hold it. And the good thing is about that, if, you, if soils are holding water for longer, that means the vegetation is able to tap into it. That means it's healthier. That also means it's transpiring water, which is going to help 
you know, keep things a little bit more human, which makes humans maybe feel a little more, more uncomfortable, but it's, you know, actually healthier for the ecosystem. Transpiring is one of my favorite facts to give kids when I worked in conservation ed when I was doing education. And we would walk, you know, into the forest or into a thick grassland, and it gets, you can feel how much more muggy or humid it gets in those areas. And I would always say, do you feel that? And they'd say, yeah. And I'd say, those are the trees sweating on you. <laughs> they always thought yeah, that was the, funny. You know, corn sweat joke. And you know, some of the humidity we have in the summer is directly attributable to the corn. Um, I can always tell when this part of the country is in really actually in drought or real true impact agriculture because the dew points are significantly lower in the afternoon. Yeah, so you talked about um, how one of the things we can prepare for is to make sure our soil stays healthy to hold water. Mm -hmm. And so you've brought me to kind of the two things we think about when we think about perhaps having longer stretches without precipitation, and that's to hold water and to grow without as much water. And so we can think about our rain gardens and our bioswales, and those are designed to catch and hold those large rain events and let it sink into the ground to the soil we've prepared to hold it, rather than running off. Once it runs into the storm drain, it's going into a stream or riverbed, and it's not being stored here where we are. And for those who don't know, that's referred to as green infrastructure. So we have our built infrastructure as communities, and then we can also tie in the green infrastructure that can help uh, play a dual role in that. Yeah, those rain gardens and bioswales are our green infrastructure. And sometimes we include some built um, parts of those. But really, if we know our plants, we can do a lot without bringing that hard infrastructure into it. And then the flip side of that is also what can keep growing when we're not getting as much water. And some of those rain gardens, we really do need to think about that. They can take huge, huge amounts of water during a rainstorm and then be dry for a month. There are plants that can do that. We need to be choosing them wisely. And you know, realistically, it's common to go week to 10 days off precipitation here multiple times a year in eastern Nebraska and in, in Iowa. Now, if you go further west of Nebraska, that you know, gets a little bit different or, or much drier in the winter than we are. Yeah, and I think this all kind of goes into um, the other thing that we've talked about quite a bit, probably in previous episodes, and we'll talk about all the time, because <laughs> if you let us, we'll go on forever, which is your typical turf grass lawn is pretty high input when it comes to water. If you want to keep it looking really lush and green, um, then you're going to have to put a lot of water into it. So another option is to replace some of that high, high input lawn to some of our lower input native grasses. And you don't even have to go fully native if that's not something you want to do. And we'll have, we have tips we can share. We'll put them in the show notes. And you can also go back to episode two to learn a little bit more about how to create a new garden bed and, and get ready for that. But you might consider native grasses, wildflowers. Who doesn't want a field of wildflowers, right? And uh, sedges. Sedges are, I think, they're the rising star. They're the Beatles in the early 60s. That's, <laughs> that's how I describe such a... You know, regarding lawns, one thing I've always tried to do is I've always mowed on the highest notch. You know, water occasionally, you know, what I do, I try to water early in the day. And I try to pick the coolest morning of the week when it's calm so you actually get more of the water to actually go, to hopefully go into the soil. If you water late in the day, your temperatures are hotter, your atmospheric demands higher, 
more of that will not reach the ground. Or if it's really, really windy, you're going to water other things in your, than your garden, other things you probably don't intend to water. There are ways to, I think, be more efficient with water use in how you manage your lawn, um, if you like having green lawns. And you know, I think we're lucky that we have enough shade in our yard that some of it stays really green without having to water hardly at all. And my own opinion is if, uh, if, if it can't stay green with being watered once a week, then it maybe needs to be something besides grass. No, those are some great tips. You talk about not watering too often, and that's a mistake I see some people make in their lawns. They've always had their sprinklers run on the set, preset. And you want the roots to grow. You want the roots to grow. and You want them to work. Yeah, if you provide all that water right at the surface, that's how far the roots have to go. And then, yes. you know, we start to back off on water or we have restrictions on how often we can water, and yours will be the oh. first brown lawn. Well, that just makes you think of another point. Uh, a very, very wet spring is maybe not your friend as a gardener because those roots may not grow down there as far as they normally would which would make them a more vulnerable if you get a warm stretch so, I mean, obviously if you keep watering you're still water at the surface but the other thing that would be probably vulnerable to would be you know an extreme wind event which the tornado threat here in recent years has been basically non-existent and i would say historically tornado outbreaks here are the exception rather than the rule but what we do get here in severe weather what we classify as um, uh, mcs's or you know squall lines that bring you high winds if your vegetation is poorly rooted it's a lot more likely to blow over Oh, yeah. And you, especially with trees, which is mm -hmm. where the real danger, you know, if my sunflower blows over, I'm really the only one who cares. I'll be upset. <laughs> but if a tree blows over, we can have some actual um, concerning situations. And so we need to be cognizant of the species we're picking mm -hmm. and look for things like those oaks that tend to be really sturdy and hardy in Nebraska and maybe stay away from some of those softer, faster growing things like maples, which give us that fall color real fast, but they grow so quickly, they just don't have time to become as strong and sturdy as our dependable oaks do. And it's another reason to keep an eye on your ash if you decided not to treat because uh, your ash tree, while traditionally a pretty strong tree and would stand up to storms, if it becomes infested, it will break very easily. So the moment you notice any sort of infestation, if you choose not to remove it until then, which is what I've done, you need to get it out uh, because it's just a lot weaker. The exciting news on the tree front, though, is as we get just a little bit warmer, some of those species that have just always been on the edge of hardiness for us are starting to become a real possibility. Hello, pecans. Yeah. We know we have a colleague who just took a trip to New Mexico scouting for some new tree species that might be uh, moving their way up here in the next decade or so. Yeah. Do you have a preview of what some of those are? No. Neither do I. We'll we ask, can ask him. We'll ask Justin when he comes back. All right. Well, thank you so much, Eric, for coming. We really appreciate it. We do ask a question at the end of every episode, which we forgot to tell you about. You can participate or we can, uh, maybe we could flip it this time. So the question is usually what plant is on your mind? If you have one, you can share it. But 
what we could do is he wants to garden. We could tell him what plant should be on his mind. I like that idea. Let's do that. Well, you can do that, and I'll tell you what plant's been on my mind actually for a couple weeks. Okay, oh, okay. let's do it. Okay. Let's do it. Plant recommendations is one of our favorite things. Sarah, do you want to go first, or do you want me to? Well, I my first thing I always like to give people, every new gardener I run into, is mountain mint. I mean, it's already in five episodes been a feature on this show. So, <laughs> but mountain mint is so easy to grow and versatile, and it's it's a really helpful one in town because I know you two live in an old neighborhood, which means your patches of sun are probably not huge. You've probably got a lot of shadier areas. We do, but we have plenty of our yard that gets that's, that's in full sun. Okay. Well, the mountain mint can go from full sun to a little bit of shade. So that's my recommendation. Actually, that would be perfect in our yard. Yeah. And I have some, so you can come look at it in my backyard and see if you like it. Sure. Um, yeah, speaking of, we should have mentioned this earlier, but Eric and I are neighbors, so that's why <laughs> we can talk about it. Yep, yep. So my recommendation, and it's just absolutely one of my favorite plants ever, is any type of liatris or liatris. People say it differently. That's the scientific name, gay feather. So what people would call it more uh, common name, I guess. Blazing but, star is also a common oh, name. Yeah, blazing star. And the reason I like it, it's very different from mountain mint <laughs> because it's much smaller, much more compact, um, but it shoots right up about three feet, four. Depends which one you're talking about. You can go three to seven feet. So yeah, I have a shorter one. <laughs> and they're usually bright 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 colors mine is a bright purple and i have it stuck in this little corner that just didn't have really any room for anything else but it needed a plant or it was going to have weeds no it, it's full sun as well okay. yeah this one is full sun we can talk about shade plants so uh, i just made the assumption that he was working with a lot of shade because of the neighborhood so mm -hmm. uh, we yeah, so part of our yard is, is very shaded and part of it's very much in the sun. But yeah, I know that the plant that's been on my mind is not anything you would put in a garden per se, but uh, I'm thinking about maybe planting a couple of trees actually to get rid of some grass that just hasn't done as well. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not going to. So yeah, I was thinking about planting uh, a couple of dogwood trees. Oh, um, yeah. Um, so I, those ones I'm thinking about, I think they're called eastern dogwood, so they're not as tall. It's like we already got a couple of tall trees in our yard, and I was thinking about something that you know, would provide some shade uh, that also has provided a little bit of habitat. Dogwood is great for habitat. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay. Hannah, what's on your mind? I was going to throw out one more recommendation. Oh, okay. We'll go for a, a cherry, native cherry, Ooh, black yeah. cherry. I th it stays it stays smaller as well. Okay. Provides a lot of good habitat, um, and the flowers on it are just gorgeous in the spring. You're going to rival most people on our street with with your flowers of your black cherry that apparently you're planting that one didn't know it <laughs> you might just wake up one morning and be like there's a black cherry in my yard hey if i don't have plants you all the better <laughs> <laughs> okay so what plant is on my mind yes well, now I have to talk about my liatris. Yeah, now you it do. It is one of my absolute favorite plants, and I will send pictures. There will be pictures in the show notes from last year's bloom because the spirals that they get when you get really close up. Have you noticed that? The buds kind of spiral. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's gorgeous, and there is always something on it. There's always an insect of some sort on it. It's very 
Yeah, popular. the cool thing about liatris is it's a spike of actually a whole bunch of little flowers that make up what we think of as the flower. And it flowers bottom to top. So it, it's like one of the longest flowers in a native garden because it, it starts at the bottom and works its way up. And monarchs love it. Bees love it. Everything loves it. If I remember correctly, in the photos I'll send, I think it has a swallowtail on Ooh. it. Ooh. So, Sarah, what are you thinking about? Well, I'm going to go with an oak after we talked about uh, the importance of oaks in Nebraska. And I'm going to go with the Buckley Oak, since that's my last name. It's Quercus Buckleyi. It's very, very closely related to the Texas Red Oak. It's from the hill country in Texas. And there's a very thriving population in Colorado by Fort Collins, which tells me it can handle the wind. So I planted one in my front yard two years ago, and it's going to be our front street tree. And I'm just so excited. It finally grew a little bit last year, and I'm thinking this year it's going to be ready to go. Yeah. The, only, the only concern I have with some you know, immature trees or shrubs is we've had a number of nights this winter where we've been zero or colder. Now, we haven't had a lot of really cold days, but we have had, you know, I would classify it as a somewhat normal number of nights around zero or colder. Uh, with no snow cover. I'm not intelligent enough to know if that's actually really harmful for some plants, but I would imagine there's some species that might be somewhat sensitive to that kind of cold without being moisture. So I will say I have been watering this tree, so it may not be the perfect example. Most of our stuff that's at least native here or very close to is going to be okay with the cold, mm -hmm. even if it would maybe like the snow cover. What I'm concerned about is now that we're in February, if we keep having weeks of 60 and then a drop, that's when that it gets scary. That's actually likely to continue for probably for a while. Yeah, like. and that's where we can, you know, t a day or two in the 60s, not a big deal. But if we get enough days to start to wake those trees up and then it gets cold, that's when we lose buds. But sure. the cool thing about trees is that many of them, native at least to the Great Plains, actually have two or three buds. So they have the big one we see. If you go out and look at your trees right now, you'll see a bud. That's its primary bud. If that one freezes off, there's one ready to take its place. And if that one freezes off, a lot of the really hardy species have one more teeny tiny little bud that might not create as big of leaves, but is at least going to get some photosynthesis happening through the summer. So they've got backup plans. Sure. Well, and I remember in 2007, we had a very warm March, and then early April, it was quite cold and, you know, most of the Midwest for a while. And, you know, a lot of things had already started blooming, blooms all died. Some of them, you know, they, they mostly all rebloomed, but it, it was like Memorial Day for a full leaf out. Right. And it, it can be disappointing for us humans because we really look forward to our trees. Mm -hmm. But the reality is if you're a plant that's designed to live for 50, 60, 100 years, you've got a few backup plants. You're playing the long game. You're not sure. worried about okay. one bad year. If you're in this latitude between the Rocky Mountains and the Great Lakes, you're going to have, you know, those warm days followed by a cold. That's just kind of, that won't change. It's just the magnitude of the variability is probably going to increase. And that's one of the reasons why we so strongly recommend our native species, because like you said, those swings aren't new. And these trees that have evolved with them have better defenses against them than when we bring in something from a really temperate climate that doesn't have as many swings, even if it reaches our usual cold. If it's not prepared for those swings, then it really doesn't matter what its low temperature is. Sure. 
Okay. Well, thank you everybody for listening. Once again, we're Boombox Growing Deeper. You can find us. Uh, don't forget to rate and review us and send us emails or voice memos with your messages or questions. Thank you to everyone who has been doing that. It's been super helpful. We really appreciate that. So thanks for listening. And Bloombox and Bloombox Growing Deeper are both programs of the Nebraska Statewide Arboretum.